Welcome to Honey, I Just Got Raptured, a Left Behind reread podcast. I'm Aaron, your host, and this week we see the beginning of the end times and the end of the beginning of this franchise. Last time, Buck interviewed Carpathia while Ray prayed for Chloe. Today, Ray goes to Bible study, Buck sets up Hattie with the Antichrist, and I discuss the seven seal judgments, so strap in. Chapter 17 finds us in Ray's bedroom, with Chloe still comforting him. She asks him not to worry, and that she's, quote, getting there, but Ray doesn't know if that references her grief over their family or her spiritual journey. She returns to bed, but he can't fall asleep, and is again overcome with loneliness. He sneaks downstairs to watch CNN. What follows is a strange report out of Jerusalem. The anchor on scene describes the appearance of two men known as Eli and Moishi, who have been preaching outside the Wailing Wall since this morning. Their message is one of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, which is upsetting the Orthodox Jews who also consider the wall sacred. A crowd surrounds the preachers, as well as a significant police presence, as they want to make sure their fiery rhetoric does not incite a riot. Ray considers calling Bruce Barnes to discuss the story. At a previous Bible study, Bruce taught them that in the coming days, 144,000 Jewish people would be converted to Christianity and continue to spread the word. Ray wonders if these two men are the first of many. The news pivots to a summary of Carpathia's recent media successes. They report that Carpathia is expected to visit the White House and address Congress. President Fitzhugh is asked about Carpathia's ideas to reshape the UN, and he seems to be hugely supportive. Another story of note is the recession of charges against writer Cameron Williams after the writer was under investigation regarding the death of a Scotland Yard investigator. Apparently, Williams was considered an international fugitive until this evening, when Scotland Yard and Interpol both ceased their manhunt. Ray gives up on TV and calls the flight center to see if he can get Hattie Durham scheduled on his flight to New York on Wednesday. He learns she'll be unavailable, as she's actually already scheduled to fly to New York on an earlier flight. Meanwhile, Buck is getting assurances from Carpathia that the cops are off his back. Carpathia actually called Stonegal and Todd Cawthorne and put them on speakerphone while he negotiated Buck's clemency. Todd Cawthorne did at one point ask Stonegal if his package was secure, which was confirmed. Buck is shocked by all this, and tells Carpathia that their ability to clear him is proof they were involved in the murders of Dirk and Allen. Carpathia repeats the assertion that he knew nothing of his backer's involvement, but Buck won't hear it. He asks if Carpathia can continue in international politics knowing his supporters are involved in such shady business, and he assures Buck that they will be dealt with. He continues to point out that currently, he doesn't know who to trust, pointing to the fact that Buck's run-in with Scotland Yard is evidence enough to steer clear of law enforcement agencies. Before they part, Buck thanks Carpathia for his assistance, and asks if there's anything he can do for him. Carpathia mentions that he needs a press secretary, but Buck graciously declines. He jokingly suggests Eric Miller, the journalist who fought Buck for the interview last episode. Remember Eric, he'll resurface in a little bit. However, Buck does ask for that scoop he was promised. Carpathia complies, informing Buck that the UN will shortly begin working closely with Israel, since they're still vulnerable, and many other nations resent them for their Desert Miracle Grow formula. He says the UN will become a de facto bodyguard for Israel if they share their secret. The UN will guarantee Israel's protection for a period of, you guessed it, seven years. Buck predicts Carpathia will get the Nobel Peace Prize. When he returns to his apartment late that night, he has a new message from Hattie Durham. On Tuesday afternoon, 
Ray is called to an emergency meeting of the New Hope Village administration team. Bruce has been studying about the end times, and he believes he's stumbled upon something significant. It's noted that Bruce uses a flip chart to give this presentation, which I find positively charming. He first shows them a drawing of a predicted timeline for the tribulation, scheduled to last roughly seven years. These years are divided into periods of judgment. The first 21 months will involve the seal judgments. The second group of 21 months will encompass the trumpet judgments. The last 42 months in these seven years will be known as the Great Tribulation, and the world will endure what is known as the Vile Judgments. If they survive these seven years, they will see Jesus Christ return to earth once again. Loretta, poor sweet Loretta, asks why he's not sure if they will survive or not. Bruce happily explains that these prophesied judgments will become increasingly terrible as the seven-year period goes on, and many of them may, quote, suffer horrible deaths. But if they do make it, Christ will set up the millennium, which is his thousand-year reign on earth, which would be nice, but they're a long way off from eternal happiness. Bruce believes they're getting very close to the start of the first 21-month period, and that the Antichrist will soon appear to unite the world. When it is revealed that the Antichrist is evil, three nations from the south will resist him, which will usher in World War III. Someone points out that Carpathia seems just like the kind of person who fits the bill of a charismatic unifier, and Bruce says they'll have to watch him, but he seems too nice to be working with the devil. Bruce then goes on to explain the seven-sealed scroll, the one most commonly associated with the apocalypse. The first four seals are our famous horsemen. White symbolizes a few months of diplomacy while the Antichrist accumulates power. Red symbolizes the war to oppose him, likely World War III. Because of the availability of nuclear weapons, Bruce predicts this war will last less than six months. Following the war comes the Black Horse of Famine, and he advises they begin to stockpile food. Lastly, the Pale Horse of Death will usher in a global plague. At this point, a quarter of the Earth's population, some 1.5 billion people if we assume Left Behind takes place in 2000, will have already perished. Seals 5, 6, and 7 are less famous, but still very important in the Left Behind canon. Seal 5 predicts the 144,000 Jewish converts being martyred en masse by the harlot religion established by the Antichrist. Seal 6 is a response to this martyrdom, coming in the form of a worldwide earthquake. The seventh seal is, well, as far as I can tell, it just introduces the next 21-month period of judgments, but I'm sure something happens. Bruce wants to end the meeting with encouragement, and so brings up the appearances of the two preachers at the Wailing Wall. He's certain these are the prophesied witnesses, those who will be given special powers and prevent rain from falling in Jerusalem until they are killed at the midpoint of the seven-year period. Three days after they are murdered, they will rise from the dead, another earthquake will rattle the city, destroying a tenth of it and killing 7,000 people. Others have seen the reporting around the preachers, and it sets in that they are really witnessing the beginning of the end. Let's check in with our favorite reporter for 20 seconds. Buck gets in touch with Hattie, who reveals she's coming to New York tomorrow. She asks if there's any way he can put her in touch with Nikolai Carpathia, and Buck says he'll see what he can do. She mentions that she also has a meeting with a pilot that day, but that's not going to interrupt her plans. On Tuesday night, Chloe says she's actually okay with tagging along on Ray's flight to New York. She says he's not ready to travel without her, and she finds it endearing. He tells her about his plan to meet with Hattie, and hopes Chloe will be there for moral support. I don't know why the book is structured like this, because we're about to switch back to Buck. 
It would be much less jarring if they just stuck the Buck bits together instead of giving us half a page of dialogue, then switching back to Ray for 200 words, and then back to Buck again. Who edited these books? Why not keep all of the characters' action in their own distinct chapter? It's like trying to read using a broken mirror. But we have to keep this train a-rollin', so let's go to the office of Stanton Bailey, the Global Weekly's publisher, on Wednesday morning. Buck has been summoned to meet with the head honcho, and fears it has to do with his cop trouble last night. When he enters the office, Steve Plank is there, and Bailey asks Buck to take a seat. He asks if he's cleared from the murder stuff, which Buck affirms. Bailey asks how he managed to get free of the investigation, and Buck says there must have been other people who knew what actually happened. Bailey is concerned about this, because this morning he received Steve's resignation. Buck is blindsided by this news, as he's been good friends with Steve for five years now. Furthermore, Steve is moving on to become the press secretary for one Mr. Nikolai Carpathia. Buck tells Steve to his face that he's upset about it. Steve says he'll still be in New York, and that seeing Carpathia speak changed something in him. He refuses to back down, saying that he'd be a fool to miss this kind of opportunity. He also asks Buck point-blank if Carpathia offered him the job first. Buck says no, and says he actually suggested Eric Miller take the gig. Steve then solemnly discloses to Buck that Eric Miller fell off the Staten Island ferry last night, and drowned. Bailey, eager to move on from Eric's tragic demise, says Steve recommended Buck take over as editor for the Global Weekly. Buck can't believe what he's hearing. The job would double his salary, give him massive influence on the type of stories they cover, and he'd still get to be the star reporter. Buck backpedals, claiming he's too young for the job he currently has. He fears more senior members of the staff would be envious and angry at him for taking over Steve's role. Bailey pushes those reservations aside, but warns Buck he has 24 hours to come to a decision. Well, that was a long chapter. Buck and Steve kick off chapter 18 with a heated conversation. Buck is astonished his friend is leaving to work for Carpathia, and feels terrible about taking over as editor. It wouldn't be the same without Steve, and he asks why he has so suddenly made this change. Steve tells Buck that he sincerely thinks Carpathia will be the biggest name ever, and that he'd be a fool not to work for him. Buck jokingly asks if he's going to be king of the world, and Steve says, quote, That won't be the title, but don't put it past him. Buck says he's a little jealous of Steve, and Steve promises Buck will always have access to both him and Nikolai. Marge Potter bursts into their office and tells them to turn on the news. They open up CNN, where a story about the two men at the Wailing Wall is breaking. Apparently, after their constant preaching about Jesus being the Messiah, some zealots attacked them, having had enough with their blasphemy. Two men, one with an Uzi submachine gun, and another with, quote, a bayonet-type knife, which is a wild thing to say, charged the preachers. The video shows the assailants rushing Moishi and Eli, but the one with the knife trips while the other tries to shoot, but his gun jams. Then he too falls to the ground. Both men are dead, and the preachers warn that those who come against them will suffer a similar fate. Everyone in the office dismisses the preachers as weird kooks, except Buck, naturally, who is somewhat impressed. He prepares to leave for JFK when Steve reminds him that he only has 24 hours to make the choice to become editor. Buck knows he's right, but is happy to have a date with Hattie Durham to distract him from this development. He wonders if he'll even recognize her, considering all the stress they've been through since they first met. Meanwhile, Ray and Chloe touch down in New York at midday. Chloe reckons Hattie won't show up to their scheduled meeting. Ray asks why, and Chloe says that she wouldn't if they switched places, and Ray mutters that he's glad Chloe is nothing like Hattie. Chloe sticks up for her, asking what makes Ray any better than Hattie. Ray is put in his place, wondering why he should speak poorly of Hattie, even though he thinks she's stupid and was mean to him. 
He apologizes, but asks why Chloe wouldn't show up. Chloe says Hattie already knows what Ray's going to say, that he used to be attracted to her, but now he wants to save her from damnation. Ray counters that salvation is extremely valuable, and Chloe responds that she won't care if he's interested in her salvation when before Hattie thought Ray just liked her as a person. Ray admits he didn't even like her as a person, just as a sex object, until his conversion. Ray, you're the worst. Chloe also brings up that if Hattie never had any religious background, there's no reason she would care about Ray's new beliefs, especially if it comes on the heels of being rejected by him emotionally. Ray says that God will provide for her needs, and Chloe tells him Hattie won't want to hear that. Ray gets defensive about Chloe framing his religion in a way that sounds like he's trying to sell a bill of goods, but inwardly, he knows this mission won't end well. At the airport, Buck links up with Hattie. The first thing she says is, quote, So, am I gonna get to meet Nikolai Carpathia? Buck did arrange for Hattie to meet Nikolai, but he feels guilty about it, knowing he's a busy man. But Carpathia, charismatic as always, said any friend of Buck's is a friend of his. So Buck and Hattie catch a cab to the Plaza Hotel and take the elevator up to Nikolai's suite. Buck mentions that he's an important person and really only has a minute, and Hattie says that she knows how to treat VIPs seeing as it's literally her job to serve them on flights. Buck is clearly embarrassed of her, and is getting dinged a point on my characters who treat women well chart. When they arrived, Chaim Rosenzweig greets them, but says Carpathia wants to speak with Buck alone first. Buck cringes, sure the Romanian will chew him out for bringing some woman to waste his time. Surprisingly, Carpathia doesn't mention it at all, and instead asks Buck if he's heard much about the attack at the Wailing Wall. Nikolai says it's the strangest thing he's ever seen, especially since the assailants died of heart attacks instantly. Buck hadn't heard that, but remains confused about the summons. Carpathia then asks if he approves of his choice of Steve Plank as his press secretary. Buck fully supports his friend, but expresses frustration at having lost one of the best members of the Global Weekly's staff. Carpathia graciously responds that by having Buck at the top, the Weekly will be even stronger. Buck then asks if Carpathia heard what happened to Eric Miller, informing him of the drowning. Carpathia appears horrified at the news, but neither of them say any more about it. Not sure why they threw that in, but whatever. Buck then apologizes for having brought Hattie to the hotel, but Nikolai cuts him off, saying that everyone is of equal value, no matter their position. They go back out of the main room to meet Hattie, who is thoroughly charmed. Buck wonders if Nikolai took Dale Carnegie's course on how to win friends and influence people, another beautiful 90s touchstone that dates this novel down to the month. While Hattie and Carpathia are chatting, Buck gets a phone call. It's Marge, who says Eric Miller's wife is trying to get a hold of him. Buck promises to call back as soon as he can, but has no idea what she'd want from him. When Buck returns to Hattie, Carpathia gives them a friendly send-off. Hattie reveals Nikolai gave her his personal phone number, further surprising Buck. She suggests they eat at the Pan Continental Club, as she's supposed to be meeting an airline pilot today, but really wants to brag about meeting Carpathia. Before they go, Buck phones Eric Miller's wife. She asks about the night he died, since Eric mentioned running into Buck while tracking a big story. She says it was too cold that night for him to be standing outside the ferry's railing, and that furthermore, Eric is a strong swimmer and easily could have survived the fall. She doesn't think his death makes sense, and is desperately hoping Buck has any clues that could help her piece this puzzle together. Buck regretfully informs her that he can't help, but asks if there's someone with her to take care of her. She says yes, and Buck says goodbye, offering his condolences. Afterwards, Buck calls a friend who works for the, quote, telephone company. He has them look up Carpathia's personal number that he gave to Hattie, and it's listed as being an unlisted private line originating from the UN Secretary General's office. 
He investigates further, calling Steve and asking him directly if Carpathia is about to be named Secretary General of the UN. Steve all but confirms it, saying that the transition will take place tomorrow. Buck asks why this is happening, and Steve says that the current Secretary General is from Botswana, a country largely comprised of the Kalahari Desert. With the Israeli formula, Botswana could also become an agricultural hub. If Carpathia arranges the trade, it only makes sense that he could step in as the new Secretary General. Buck agrees that the plan is genius, and confides in Steve that he is going to take his job as the editor of the Weekly. But before he does, Buck asks Steve what he knows about Eric Miller. Quote, What did Eric Miller get too close to? And what lead was he tracking? Steve's voice became hollow, his tone flat. All I know about Eric Miller, he said, is that he got too close to the railing on the Staten Island Ferry. We switch to Chloe and Ray when Chapter 19 opens. Ray is moping again, wondering why he hasn't been able to convert Chloe, frustrated at her prediction that Hattie won't show. He chastises himself for being afraid to offend people, knowing the spiritual stakes of not doing so. There's no time to be polite to others, now that the Antichrist is gathering strength. He calls Bruce to discuss this fear of coming on too strong. Bruce dissuades him, but Ray insists he's becoming obnoxious. He's right, of course, but if Ray were to figure that out, the whole franchise structure would collapse. They discuss the two preachers on the news, and confirm those are the two preachers predicted in the Bible. Bruce says that should be more than enough evidence to give Ray the confidence he needs. Bruce hangs up on him, and Ray steals himself. Buck and Hattie stop by the Global Weekly headquarters to pick up his equipment. When he asks for someone to bring his bag down, Marge informs him that Steve and Stanton Bailey are looking for him. Buck takes the elevator upstairs, where he and Steve rush into the big boss's office. Bailey firstly asks Steve if Wanganti Ngomo is preparing to step down as the Secretary General of the UN, but Steve feigns ignorance. Bailey pushes him, informing the audience that Jonathan Stonegal had a big part to play in Botswana's addition to the European common market a few years back. Clearly, there's some connection between him, Carpathia, and Ngomo. Steve can only say that tomorrow, Carpathia will publicly state he does not want to be Secretary General, insisting the reorganizations he has in mind would require unanimous support and massive change. Bailey asks what those reorganizations might entail, and Steve zips his lips. Bailey becomes furious, reminding Steve of all the times he's taken a chance on him, not to mention the great salary he received, and demands he spills the beans. He mentions that just because he's an administrator, it doesn't mean he can't still have sources that give him important information. Steve asks who's been giving him information, and Bailey says he knows someone who knows the vice president of Romania, who is apparently getting ready to run the country indefinitely. Furthermore, his African contacts are claiming Secretary General Ngomo has just cut a deal to gain access to the Israeli formula, just as long as he quits his job. Lastly, someone from the paper Eric Miller worked at let him know that Eric was trying to do a story about how the disappearances might be related to Carpathia's meteoric rise. With all that on the table, Bailey then turns his guns on Buck. He's worried Buck is planning to leave Global Weekly, but Buck assures him he'll accept the promotion to editor. Bailey is very pleased by this, and immediately returns to grilling Steve about Carpathia. Steve caves, telling them that Carpathia wants to change the UN Security Council and include some of his own representatives, which will probably include Joshua Todd Cothran. Furthermore, Carpathia will require Ngomo to appoint him the new Secretary General, and afterwards, he'll require member nations to destroy 90% of their weapons and give the other 10% to the UN. Lastly, he wants to move the UN headquarters to Babylon. You know, Babylon, the city which mostly contains the ruins of an empire that's been dead for millennia? That Babylon. Apparently, 
LaHaye and Jenkins thought it'd be fine to drop the fact that after 19 chapters of the most sludge-like prose I've ever read, some unknown investor has spent millions of dollars converting it into the modern city of New Babylon. Hey Jerry, you forgot to put the gun above the fireplace. Or in this case, put the techno-renovations literally anywhere else in the story! Anyway, Carpathia also wants to do some other wild stuff, like trade Israel's magic formula for seven years of peace and establish a single unified religion headquartered in Italy, which I assume means Vatican City, because these guys don't like Catholics very much. He'll also help the Orthodox Jews rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, more or less for no reason except for scripture. Buck asks if either of them are concerned about Carpathia. He brings up that several people who have crossed him in the past wound up dead, including Eric Miller. Before they can talk further, Marge informs Buck that Hattie Durham is asking about him, and can't wait by their cab any longer. Bailey makes the great point that Buck probably shouldn't be going on dates while he's supposed to be working. But Buck makes some excuse, and asks Marge to tell Hattie he'll catch up with her at the airport. Just want to point out that Hattie is getting shafted again by our protagonists. Super cool. Bailey transitions the conversation to Buck's upcoming feature story about the disappearances. He personally believes they were caused by a natural phenomena, similar to Carpathia's theory. Buck says he doesn't really know what his own thoughts are, but that Lucinda Washington who ran the Chicago Bureau thought it was the rapture. He says he's going to talk to an airline pilot later today to get his opinion as well, not mentioning that he already got the opinion of a different pilot way earlier in the book. When Buck finally is allowed to leave, his mind races with all the possible connections Carpathia might have to everything that's happened in the week. Even though he wants to like Carpathia a lot, he begins to doubt the Romanian had nothing to do with the deaths of his friends. He spares a thought for the loss of his sister-in-law and her children, musing that it would be nice if they all went to heaven. He tries to forget the notion, citing his Ivy League education as the reason that anything supernatural should be dismissed. But he admits to himself that with Steve leaving the Global Weekly, his life was about to become very lonely since he has no steady partner or close family connections. While another taxi drives him to the airport, Buck uses his laptop to investigate Eric Miller's most successful stories. Among them is one titled New Babylon, Stonegal's Latest Dream, which describes how the businessman is behind the financing of the ancient city's development. Buck is forced to consider an ultimatum. If Nikolai does nothing about Stonegal once he becomes secretary general, then Buck knows he cannot be trusted. If the rest of the UN agrees to the incredible reorganization efforts Carpathia has proposed, he will become the most powerful man on the planet in a matter of days. If Jonathan Stonegal is pulling his strings, Buck fears for the future of the world. I'm going to cut my thoughts summary on this episode short, because I expect Apocrypha to run long, but I think these chapters start getting into the meat of why the Left Behind franchise is fascinating to me. They're chock full of paranoia, unnecessary interpersonal conflict, and foreign policy predictions that wouldn't look out of place in Breitbart. In this week's Apocrypha, I'm going to look into the seal judgments predicted in the first 21 months of the end times. I mentioned them briefly during our research into Revelation, but I want to examine them a little more closely today. At first glance, the passages from Revelation 6 seem pretty straightforward if you read the book as an explanation of the end times. I mean, it's not super hard to imagine what there was a great earthquake means, but I still want to go point by point and dig into the consequences of each seal being broken. First I'll read the scripture, and then we'll take a look at various interpretations. From the New International Version, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow 
and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. As Bruce explained, the rider of the white horse is widely believed to be the Antichrist. It should be noted that he was given the crown, and did not earn it for himself. The only reason this conqueror can commit atrocities is because God wills it. Furthermore, the rider does not have any arrows for his bow, which suggests he will use diplomacy to bring the nations to heel instead of force. Various corners of the internet agree with Lehay and Jenkins' conclusion that Israel will be one of the first nations to partner with the Antichrist. I took the liberty of looking up a list of people accused of being the Antichrist over the years and came away with some surprising results. Of course, you're going to get powerful figures such as Barack Obama, Ronald Reagan, Mikhail Gorbachev, Pope Benedict XVI, Adolf Hitler, Napoleon Bonaparte, and Emperor Nero Caesar. But some other contenders include Bill Gates, Danny DeVito, a fictional computer, Superman, and Jesus of Nazareth. So uh, take any Antichrist predictions with a grain of salt. Let's keep reading. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. The color red and big sword signify the Antichrist's transition from peaceful means to violent ones. The treaty with Israel will come under attack, and the Antichrist will lead an army to crush those who oppose him. In Left Behind, this will result in the Third World War. According to BibleTruth.org, red is also the color of China, Russia, and communism, so you know it's extra bad. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. This passage illustrates skyrocketing demand for food following ongoing wars. Furthermore, oil and wine will be luxuries only the wealthy can afford. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were giving power over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. In times of war and famine, disease also tends to run rampant. Bible Truth writes quite extensively on their fear of biological and nuclear attacks. One quarter of the Earth's population will be killed, so it makes sense that death follows war and famine. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God, and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer, until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. Bible Truth brings up an important change of heart in reference to the fifth seal. They describe how Christians traditionally want to pray for peace and forgiveness, but now they ask God for revenge. It fits the angry tone of Revelation, and shows how this book really isn't in line with many other parts of the New Testament. To be fair, Bible Truth spent about 300 words complaining about public schools and the ACLU, so like, this might just be a broken clock being right twice a day sort of thing. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth, as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. 
Bible Truth speculates that the Great Earthquake may occur when the volcano under Yellowstone National Park goes active. This eruption, combined with all the dust thrown up from our aforementioned wars, will blot out the sky, turning it black and obscuring the stars. However, the falling of the stars could be in reference to a meteor shower that further scourges the planet. Fun fact, the imagery of an eclipse which turns the moon blood red is actually where I got the idea for the podcast's cover art. Lastly, we'll skip ahead to Revelation 8, where the final seal is broken. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour, and I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel, who had a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer, with the prayers of all God's people, on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth, and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This silence in heaven is widely interpreted to be a calm before the storm situation. References to a silence in the eye of the hurricane, before Noah's flood, and during the siege of Jericho could all be relevant. However, most sources agree half an hour does not literally mean 30 minutes, but is just supposed to be a dramatic pause. If you can't already tell, the god of Revelation is a bit of a diva. When another huge earthquake and the thunderstorm strike Earth again, it is only the end of Act 1 of the Tribulation. That'll bring us to the end of our show. Please don't forget to give us a 5-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you're just as obsessed with this stuff as me, consider recommending the show to a friend. Follow at RapturedPod on Twitter for news about new episodes. Follow me on Twitter at AaronSXL. Hope you have a great week. This has been Honey, I Just Got Raptured, a podcast of the Earth's last days. <laughs>